First off, um, this afternoon, my guest is David Axelrod. I've been trying for a long time to get him to come on and give us the magic uh-huh. elixir that is going to move those amazing uh, uh, voters who voted for Obama and then decided to vote for Trump back to the Democratic column. I think that's really our secret weapon, and I don't know anyone more qualified to um, answer a few questions on where do you see the state of play right now in rural America, what should um, our candidates be talking about in rural America, and how can we win those candidates back. So maybe, David, you can tell us a little bit about the outreach that the Obama campaign had in 2008 and then again in in the reelect to rural voters and why that works so much better than what it um, did for Secretary Clinton. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, um, it's it's a pleasure to be with you, Heidi. And you know more you could uh, you know more in your sleep than I could uh, than I could possibly add to the discussion of rural voters. Uh, these are your constituents; you understand them uh, so well. You know, one of the fundamental precepts is if you want people's votes show up, uh, that would be rule number one. Uh, and we were very conscious of this, and we campaigned in rural areas. Uh, you know, it was helpful to have uh, a 50-state primary campaign, but uh, in which we spent a lot of time in rural America, and remember, 87 days in the state of Iowa. But Barack Obama was also accustomed to campaigning in, in those areas uh, because downstate Illinois was very much— uh, is a rural and small-town area and uh, very much— uh, like Iowa, but he was he was very comfortable in that uh, in that venue, you know. And part of it was his grandparents from Kansas, but you know, one of his gifts was he he uh, was comfortable in any room that he uh, walked into, and so that was that was helpful. But we showed up, we 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 because I think if you don't show up, the message you're sending is you're not really part of this, you're not important to us. And uh, I think that was a big mistake in 2016. You know, obviously, when you look at the margins in Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, it's clear that uh, a more aggressive campaign effort there could have cut the uh, could could have cut the Trump margins in the rural areas, but also uh, encourage greater turnout in the metropolitan areas. So, show up would be uh, rule number one. The second is show respect. Uh, the fact of the matter is that. You know, and I have a place in rural Michigan. I was struck by the fact that um, uh, there were a number of my neighbors who had been Barack Obama voters who voted for Donald Trump. Um, you know, they're good, hardworking people who uh, are struggling in a changing economy, uh, and they felt uh, they felt discarded in some ways, uh, and they also felt like the things that, it wasn't even that they were hostile uh, on many of the issues that were being discussed, uh, it was that they didn't speak to their own experience. And, uh, you know, there are specific struggles to rural communities, and there are specific issues relative to the changing nature of the economy uh, that uh, are relevant to rural areas, and candidates should speak to them uh, as a matter of, of respect and uh, recognition that, uh, you know, there are good, hardworking people out there trying to make a living. Uh, and the, then the other thing is, uh, and, you know, I, I, the cultural issues. Uh, you know, the fact is that we, we did well 
in part because we stress economic issues very strongly. We stress the value of work and making sure that those who work hard uh, can reap the benefit of that work and, and that that shouldn't be limited to geographical segments of our country, but to all our country and, um, and, and that the middle class is the backbone of, uh, and the working class is the backbone of this country. That was fundamental. You know, everybody remembers hope and change from 2008, but we had a fundamental economic message that we pursued uh, from the first day Barack Obama became a candidate uh, to the day he was nominated throughout uh, his administration, and particularly in that first term. And it was very much the message of our second uh, campaign. He was an advocate for the middle class and for working class people and people who are living from paycheck to paycheck. Um, that is such an important message to send. And we stuck to that and, and we tried to steer away from uh, more divisive uh, social issues. I, I was going to say, I think that, that the kind of conventional wisdom coming certainly from uh, the more progressive wing of our party is that, look, these, these are voters who are lost to us forever on cultural issues. You are just wasting our time. We're going to amp up, you know, it's kind of the Trump playbook, amp up the, the anger and the angst in our, our base, in the far left base, and that's going to carry us forward. The problem with that challenge is you can't govern, <laughs> you know, when you're just yeah. inflaming um, the, 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 the sides of it. And but let me let me let me just say on that point, I'm not uh, I'm not sure that it's even a prescription for winning. Uh, you know, when I look at the states that will determine the election and we all know the system we have, um, it's not at all clear that that alone, especially next time will carry the day. And, you know, I think you have to get some segment of that Trump voter to walk across the bridge. And I think, you know, you, you, can, uh, you can do that uh, in part uh, because, well, you can do that with women in particular, I think. Uh, I think it's harder with men. Uh, but, you know, I look at polling and I look at where these, uh, these uh, rural uh, women are and, you um, uh, you know, uh, various segmentations, non-college uh, uh, white women. And, you know, they are they are hostile to Trump. They're not in love with Trump. Uh, and they uh, they don't like his behavior. And uh, they're, you know, and I, I've said many times, I think that there is an exhaustion factor with Trump, with the tweets and the tantrums and the and the uh, gratuitous fights and the chaos that reigns around him. And I think that, you um, uh, if you ask the question, can we really do this for four more years? Can we, the, the day after day after day of this, that you can break away uh, some of these voters. There, there are subtext messages, economic messages about uh, whether, in fact, they've actually benefited from his policies and so on. But ultimately, I think the exhaustion factor uh, is a big one, uh, but obviously, if you if you simply say, "Look, you're you're not in our tribe, and therefore you're not invited," they're not going to walk across that bridge. I I think that Trump's behavior has given us an opening. I mean, there's no doubt about it. So now, all of a sudden, people are saying, "Well, I'm willing to consider someone else." You know, not the hardcore Trump voter, but voters who reluctantly voted for Trump or voted for him on the idea that he was somehow going to change his behaviors. You know, now they're saying maybe 
maybe we should look at something else. But you can't win elections with nothing. You can't simply win by by saying, uh, you know, Donald Trump's behavior is not uh, is not what I would expect from a president. You've got to have a message, I think, that um, resonates in terms of optimism for the future. And and there's no greater to me, no greater uh, difference between uh, what you're going to see in this campaign than this deep, dark message of Trump, which is things are horrible and were horrible before I got here. And, you know, now I've made them better because I alone can do it, which most people say, you know, no one does things alone compared to a, a message of optimism that we can be better as a country. And one of the things that I think is interesting as we kind of go through this process that we're going through right now with with Iowa kind of looming, um, how would you evaluate the outreach to the Trump Obama voters right now by the by the candidates that we have in the field? And what advice would you give to down ballot candidates on how they could approach those Obama voters? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, let me say that uh, certainly you're right. People basically at the end of the day uh, vote about those things that are closest to home. And, they, you know, they're thinking about their 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 future, their family's future. And they want to believe that there is a better day ahead and there's hope ahead. My point on the exhaustion factor is there is a price to be paid for the tweets and the tantrums, the uh, gratuitous fights and the chaos. And that is that you never really get down to solving those things that are most important in people's lives. Uh, you know, I'd start with health care as a major concern uh, of uh, so many Americans, and certainly in rural America, it's a uh, it's a concern. And there are others that go to to fundamental uh, well-being. So, I mean, I, as a candidate, I would make that two-step. I would I would say, you know, we, we're never going to solve these problems if we're consumed every day, you know. And and in that, and then I think you can move on to uh, a positive message. I actually think, to the degree that these candidates are are focusing on things like these presidential candidates like uh, health care and, uh, uh, you know, the cost of college. And, uh, you know, we can quibble about uh, what the answer should be uh, on those questions. But to those things that are close to home, uh, I think that is uh, it is better terrain. One thing I would say, Heidi, is um, you don't beat you know, you're not going to win a, a mud wrestling fight with Donald Trump. You have to be tough. You have to be resilient. You can't be allow him to uh, define the race for sure. But uh, I think you beat Trump with jujitsu, not with uh, not by trying to match force with force and use his negative energy against him, because every time he lashes out, it's another example of what we can expect in the next four years. And I think for those people who are uneasy about his governing style, they're not going to be less comfortable come uh, next November. But they do need to feel that the person they have is fundamentally sound and, 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 and has in his, in his or her sights their concerns and, um, and who is, is not uh, uh, so far out of the mainstream uh, that uh, they are uncomfortable. And that, of course, is, you know, a, that, that, that is very much on, on people's minds right now. Yeah. It, you know, it's so interesting because I keep thinking when I watch him, if I were kind of in the field, I go, there you go again. I mean, right. there he goes again. I, you know, right. kind of the Ronald Reagan, like, you know, look at this guy, like, like he's not ready 
to uh, assume not just leadership of this country, but leadership of the world. And and no. I think that's the uncomfortableness that people have that's created the opportunity. But I've been frustrated, I will tell you, because I think there's missed opportunities. So, you know, everybody's running to the, the health care. But, you know, we just got a report last week about the billions of dollars the um, financial industry has reaped as a result of this tax yes. proposal. The same yeah, people who tank the yeah. economy. Right. And, and so, you know, this is about priorities. You know, my argument in Iowa would be, look, these are people who gave billions. I mean, tens of billions of dollars to people who tanked the economy, who never went to jail. And guess what? Our levees are broken and we can't fix our levees and we can't yeah. fix our bridges. I mean, right. those are the kinds of arguments to me that will resonate because all of a sudden, you know, you're in the Donald Trump world of we've got the best economy. I'm doing the greatest job in the history of the world. Yes. And you've got to start showing concrete examples about the failure of prioritization of America's problems. And I and I think that that's the kind of thing that we're trying to do at one country that really says, hey, don't just run towards what's comfortable or what what you've poll tested nationally. Here's a real local issue. Those levees in Iowa that are creating huge flooding that, that make it impossible, yes. not just for rural America to thrive, but many of the larger cities, that should be one of the major issues. Right. No, I agree with you completely. And I think that, you know, one of the things about the modern media uh, environment uh, and the tools that are available is there is an opportunity to run an ongoing campaign. And some people are trying, you know, my, my, my old friend David Pluff is working with a group called Acronym. And uh, there are others uh, trying to micro-target these messages in these communities. Uh, so, you know, the plant that the president promised to keep open shuts down. Uh, that's meaningful to the people in those uh, communities and if the the beneficiaries uh, of his tax cut were uh, were also the people who helped shut the plant down, uh, you know that's you know those are the kinds of opportunities that in a campaign you would look for and should be a constant sort of uh, 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 drumbeat uh, in uh, affected communities and uh, de you know for sure. Uh, Democrats ought to be uh, focused on that. I think the overarching thing is the sort of climate that makes progress impossible. But I think the uh, but I think the, the example you raise is a brilliant one. Uh, that was a stunning number. Uh, the the amount of money that the financial institutions reaped uh, from the tax cut and infuriating, I'm sure, to your uh, constituents and particularly. Uh, surprising, given the fact that the president ran against the swamp and the corruption of Washington. Uh, and this is a, a prima facie evidence of that. So uh, I, I, I am in total accord uh, with you. Um, you know, but uh, th th those things are not those are the, those are things that will motivate people. Uh, I think if you lean heavily into cultural issues, you will you will drive them away. Right. I mean, you know, you, you think about um, what you do in campaigns. I mean, you're true to yourself, but you look for those messages that, you know, the people are already 90 percent with you. You just need to say, hey, look here. And the one thing that you will hear over and over again, I don't care if it's a Democrat or Republican an independent, you know, these people who tanked the economy in 2008 never went to jail. 
they really never yeah. suffered the consequences. Yes. And now not only are they not suffering the consequences, they're reaping huge rewards. That should have been, yeah. you know, in my opinion, a huge democratic opportunity that's been missed. And uh, we're going to transition now to what's happening in Washington, D.C. as we sit here and visit with the um, with the impeachment trial. And, you know, I'm not criticizing anyone, but I think there is this sense among kind of the Democratic elite. And I don't, I'm not picking on MSNBC, but, you know, the people who just feed on MSNBC every day to believe that the rest of the world is just watching this with. Uh, well, you know, yeah, no, I agree. And, and you look, you talk to these can no, and you talk to these candidates, and they'll tell you that impeachment rarely comes up uh, in their in their town hall meetings. Uh, you know, people see it as an abstraction. They think that the 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 the, the uh, vote is uh, predetermined, and that maybe this and the president's been very successful with at least uh, some segment of the country to in depicting it as a kind of scrum between parties. I think there is an obligation for uh, for. There was an obligation for the House to pursue this because it was such a brazen thing that the president did. But one shouldn't confuse that with, uh, you know, where the minds of the average uh, voter is out there. And that, that is the, the average voter is much more focused on the things that are right in front of them and not what they consider a, a Washington uh, scrum. But, you know, one of the problems we have is that we live in a siloed society, you know, and um, I, I, you know, I, you, you were good enough to come. I run this Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. We have this thing called Bridging the Divide, and we take students from the University of Chicago and uh, pair them up with students from uh, Eureka College, a small, uh, a small community, uh, uh, small private college in central Illinois, rural college, where Ronald Reagan went, and another group from Arupe College, which is a two-year college where a lot of young immigrant students go. And they spend time together in Chicago. They spend time together in central Illinois talking to people. They see focus groups of voters in both places. And it's an eye-opening experience for everyone because we are so siloed, and we need to break those silos down and try and understand uh, what is going on in other parts of the country and in other communities? And you know, uh, uh, we the, the you you the things that you know people in in Chicago may revel in the changing nature and the the uh, of our of our country and uh, all that the, all the positive things that that represents. There are other people who who find those changes threatening, and Donald Trump has uh, mined that sense of loss and aggrievement and cultural estrangement. And if we're going to, as you say, not just uh, if Democrats are not going to just win an election, but if the uh, but if we're going to actually govern, there has to be a real effort to kind of hear each other and as best as possible understand each other, understand the problems that are prevalent in, in, in all communities and not just some communities and reach past these media silos. And, and a candidate who, who has the best chance to be successful is the candidate who projects the ability to do that and is not simply going to play the reverse of the Trump game and try and maximize the base. I think that's the, that's always the general debate. And I, you know, obviously, you know, where I'm on the political spectrum, much more moderate than many of my counterparts and uh, former as former senators. And, you know, my, my point is, look, you, you will never win by being exclusive. You've got to come up with a message as 
uh, Barack Obama did or Bill Clinton did, a message that yes. is inclusive, that's hopeful, that, that basically tells people, you know, most people will give up their own, their own livelihood, or, you know, as success if they know their kids are going to be better. And I think that's one yes. of the, you know, whether that's a unifying, if you look across the cultural divide, whether it is in rural America with, you know, conservative, you know, culturally conservative um, uh, people or, you know, in, in uh, urban areas, everybody wants something better for their kids and better for this country. And, you know, when you can convince people that Donald Trump is going to waste four more years of moving us in a direction that will guarantee prosperity for this country in the next 50 years, never mind the next three um, I think that's the winning message, and and you know, governability is going to be a huge part of the swing voters' interest. You know, can't you all get along and get stuff done? And you right. know, the person who's played that the best, right? The person who's played that the best has been, I think, Amy Klobuchar. I mean, she's mm-hmm. been basically out there. Joe has a version of that. You know, they they all have a theory of their case, and it's interesting to watch it play out right now. Um, but, but I think I keep looking at them through the lens of, you know, what, what would they say down at the Morton bar? Now, Morton is a small town in North Dakota near where I grew up. And, yes. uh, you know, you know, there's a group of five, 10 guys who sit there and watch the news together. And, you know, that's on television before they head home. And, you know, what are they saying at the Morton bar about all this? And if you yeah. can get them to do a little head nod and occasionally when somebody talks, you've got to weigh in. Yeah. I also, you know, and I think that it's, it, yeah, it goes back to, it also goes back to my first, that what you say is, is so, so true. It also goes back to my first point, which is, um, you know, give people the respect of trying to hear them, give people the, the respect of, uh, you know, uh, of, of, of not, uh, reducing them to caricatures. Uh, and that, by the way, is true across the political divide on both ways. But, you know, uh, I look at the winning candidates and they're, as you say, they're people who are they are they are welcoming. They are looking for common ground, not for uh, divides to mine and uh, and and weaponize. And, uh, you know, the country desperately needs that now. Um, you know, my my you know, I am. People would be surprised when I say this, but I'm not that, you know, I'm, I've certainly come from a partisan background, but I don't consider myself excessively partisan. And, um, you know, my my concern about this president, I don't like a lot of his policies, but I, there are a lot of Republican presidents and, and sometimes a Democratic president whose policies I, I didn't like. That's not the point. The point is that there are certain things that have to be universal, and that is, you know, our our institutions respected? Is there a rule of law? And then is the president, does the president consider him or herself president of the whole country uh, and not just the part of the country that voted for them? Uh, Because if you go into that with that mindset that you're just trying to, that you're just trying to capitalize on your own base, your own political base, makes, as you point out, governing very, very difficult and it's bad for the country. You know, I have, I have a friend who um, recently gave a speech. We were at Hunter College together, and basically what he said is, America's finding out that democracy is on the honor system. You know, how many yeah. times in, in the last yeah. three years That's have you said, line, well, he can't do that? Well, sure, he can do that. He cannot show us his tax returns. Just because there's right. been a very rich tradition 
of, of um, people volunteering. I mean, so now all of these assumptions we've made about behavior and about hypocrisy and lying, they're out the window. And if, if in fact we say that's a successful political strategy and policy strategy, what happens with the next president? And I think this is dangerous. Yeah. First of all, we do have values that we live by in our daily lives, and we should expect the president of the United States to honor those uh, same values. But you're right. You, you, every norm you blow up, every rule you uh, ignore, every law you flout, uh, it's very hard to put it back together again. Every institution uh, you destroy. And that, that to me, you know, I, I'm, you know, on this impeachment thing, I, I, I think— it is a very real question as to whether in a divided country the United States Senate should remove a president of the United States and what is the cost of that. On the other side of that discussion, however, is what are the implications of blatantly, flagrantly violating the spirit of the Constitution and doing what the president did without any, without, you know, any penalty, and uh, does you know? A does it encourage him to do more? And B, what does it mean for future presidents? Uh, and so, this is a very this is a serious thorny discussion. It probably will get reduced to politics when the votes come. Uh, but the implications of what's happening uh, are are real uh, for the future. Well, it, it it's interesting because when you if if I were sitting in those chairs and I were a Republican, I'd be worried about how much I didn't know. I mean, so, yeah. so this idea that we're not going to find out all the facts, we're not. So, so what happens in a year or in six months when somebody comes forward with a credible claim of something else that happened? I mean, we've got that secret server box where they put all the inappropriate conversations the president has had with foreign leaders so nobody else right. can vet them. That's eventually, I mean, barring somebody purging all that, that's eventually going to come out. And, you know, I really, I, I mean, I don't want to pick on someone, but I want to ask Lamar Alexander, who is an institutionalist, <laughs> who is a rational person, I want to say, what happens when you find out he that he had a, a equally disturbing, if not more disturbing conversation with Vladimir Putin? I mean, you don't know what you don't know. And that's one of the things that I think is most frightening is that there is this consistent, and I don't know that I call it cover up, but there certainly is a lot of butt covering being done by, uh, by people in the White House to try and prevent the actual, you know, total exposure of the crazy from hitting the public eye. And well, there's know, no question at some about point... That. I mean- you mentioned Lamar Alexander. There's a guy who is an institutionalist, a, a decent uh, a person, a thoughtful person, and he's not running for re-election. You know, you kind of you you're, you're a you're a veteran politician. You understand the instinct for self-preservation, and there's a reign of terror in the Republican Party. Uh, no one wants to defy this president because, with a you know, with a tweet or a, an arch statement, he can send a movement against you in your primary. And they're all scared about that because they know that he will do it. Uh, but uh, for those who are retiring, uh, you know, they, they've got to be thinking about something else, which is their legacy. Uh, 
uh, and their conscience. And, uh, you know, I, I, we'll, we'll see what happens. My guess is politics being what it is, they will, uh, they will try and do half a loaf and vote for witnesses. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, we'll say, you know, whatever the president did, the voters will have a chance to decide in November. And, uh, and you know, that's a colorable argument. But uh, I think it would be interesting to do a straight up censure vote and see what happens in the Senate. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's well, kind of I... like a jury when, you, you know, as a, as a former prosecutor, you know, you, you, you don't want to overcharge your case, right? Because you want that, that verdict. And, and I, think, I, I think that there's enough people who are disturbed by the behavior um, and who don't, don't run any political risk. But I just want to point out something that you just said, David, which is, you know, there, there, there's going to be people who are running who will do a political calculation. And there's people who are going to uh, have conscience. What people in this country want is everybody to vote their conscience. You know, yeah. and, and it's like th- this is what what has made the institutions has weakened the institutions um, by not yeah. having that kind of traditional statesman like kind of behavior where it's a constant. You know, what is this? What does this mean for me as opposed to what does it mean for the country? Well, I'm, I'm not to uh, in any way sound patronizing, but, um, you know, uh, you're in certain ways. I agree with you, and I hunger for that, and I believe in this democracy, and I want to see a rebirth of that spirit, uh, and I don't like the direction in which we're going, but people will say, well, you know, Heidi Heitkamp, she uh, she voted her conscience, and now she's, you know, she's doing a podcast. So, uh, you know, and that's, I mean, that's a, that's a, you know, they look at Jeff Flake, they look at Corker. They look at the people who Trump has run out of public life. Uh, you know, the people say, well, you know, they, they keep raising the Nixon analogy, but this is really more akin to the McCarthy era when uh, there was this reign of terror and people were fearful that McCarthy would brand them as, uh, as a, you know, a communist or a communist sympathizer, and that would end their careers. It was only when, uh, you know, uh, uh, he took on the army and Eisenhower got exercised and he had, you know, the great confrontation in his hearing uh, uh, with uh, over uh, over the army. That uh, the thing. So, you know, the question is: Will the fever break? Will there ever get to be a point where, uh, you know, enough people of conscience stand up and say this is as far as we can go? I agree with you. A censure vote would would probably carry in the Senate. The question is: Is Mitch McConnell going to put a censure vote? Uh, in front of the Senate when you have a president and his legal team asserting that he did absolutely nothing wrong. That's their quote, absolutely nothing wrong. Well, he patently did something wrong. And um, it is shocking uh, that there are, so, there are so many people willing to stand up and parrot this line. Uh, and so, yeah, it would be great because I think more important than I, I, I think that more important than whether he gets removed from office here, which I think does have cataclysmic impacts, is that a marker be laid that this is wrong. This cannot stand. This is not how we as a, uh, as a constitutional democracy uh, function. And uh, the president violated the rules, wait, uh, you know, and he needs to pay some price for it. 
that if 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 what happens now is acquittal and the message is no, you know, you can pretty much do what you want. Uh, that is such a dangerous signal, as you point out, not just for this president who is likely to take advantage of that, but for all future presidents. It's a very unhealthy sign. Yeah, it's it's so interesting when I talk to my my Republican friends and they talk about, you know, these great things that the president's done. And I said, well, you know, most of that stuff can be undone because he did it by executive order. He did it by simply reversing Obama policies. So he's done nothing that that has any permanency to it. Um, even doing uh, the tax bill through reconciliation creates an opportunity to undo it in reconciliation. I said, don't you want certainty? Isn't that really what moves this country forward is not, you know, it, you know, depending upon who's in charge, it, it, it happens or it doesn't happen. We've got to move this country forward. And it's, it's always interesting, you know, people who uh, like, like Ted Cruz and, and Mike Lee, who I had to sit uh, when I was presiding over the Senate and listen to him rail on about the constitutional breach of executive order and to watch him now sit on their hands. I want to say, you know, history is going to judge you guys and, and you can you can that, you know, have the glory today, such as it is, of being a United States senator, but you're never going to be exceptional. You're never going to be exceptional yeah. statesmen in, in, in this category. And I think that's the, the real tragedy is, is with the loss of John McCain, and I think you know and uh, yes, great yes. friends um, John and Cindy um, are to me. And, and I just honestly believe this, David. I think that if John McCain were there today, it would be a whole different view. Yeah, no, I'm sure I mean, that number that's one, right. He, you know. he's, he was so protective of Ukraine to start out yes. with. And, and yes. the whole, I mean, you know, it wouldn't have gone on as long without a major, I mean, he would have, that Trump could not have withheld the, the aid as long as what he did if John McCain had been alive and in the Senate. There's just no doubt in my mind. And he, he yeah. always had the gravitas and he would break wind you know, in the old biking metaphor, you get the guy up there to, you know, to, to uh, right. you know, lead the charge. And yes, people, exactly. he would just suck people with them. Yeah. And and that's yes, gone. There's I, no one like that anymore. I, I, I agree with that. Um, one thing I would say to you is it's not just do you want permanence and predictability. You know, when, uh, when, when we got elected, George W. Bush could not have been more helpful to us in the transition. Uh, he to President Obama, all our counterparts in the White House, everything that we asked for they gave us, and they went the extra step of inviting us over to brief us up on their jobs, to answer any questions. And they didn't do that because George W. Bush loved everything we said in that election. We were pretty hard on him. They did it because he understood that he was a trustee of the democracy and that uh, we have these institutions have to endure, as you said earlier. If we if we allow the the sort of hammer blows to institutions and the rule of law and uh, uh, you know our alliances in the world and uh, all of these sort of pillars, um, they're going to be very hard to repair. And uh, so. My view is policies can easily be changed, some more easily than others, but, uh, but repairing broken institutions is a much harder thing. And so 
uh, it seems to me that Republicans and Democrats need to make a stand for the rule of law, for institutions, for these fundamental pillars of our democracy, because without that, we as a country are not exceptional. And uh, that is what worries me. So we'll see. And I suspect that I could get takers on that proposition in small towns and large, you know. Uh, and uh, but I, I mean, I think I think people are hungry for I, I, if you ask a coal miner in West Virginia, do you think your children are going to be mining coal? Almost all of them, even if they said Trump could be a permanent president, would say, no, they're not going to be mining coal. I mean, and so people are not so naive to believe that that things aren't going to change. They just need to know what it's changing into and where they fit in and how they're going to thrive in that change. And I think that's yeah. where we have failed in rural America. And I think we yeah, failed to and, say I mean, this is the change. Yes, yes. And, uh, and you know, the fact of, yeah, I, 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 listen, I 100% agree with you. We either, we, we need a, we need a, 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 a government and a, a policy that has uh, everyone in its focus. And, you know, we celebrate, there, there's no doubt that the new economy has produced enormous opportunities for those who are well positioned to take advantage of them. But it's created a lot of disruption in a lot of other communities and a lot of other places. And the challenge of the 21st century, because change is going to come more and more rapidly, is how are we adapting so that uh, everyone can share in the opportunity and, and and people aren't being left behind and communities aren't being left behind. And, uh, you know, so uh, there's no doubt that the economy is uh, strong. You know, uh, when, I remember when we had 10.2 percent unemployment and you do as well. When President Obama left, it was 4.7. It's now 3.5. Congratulations to President Trump. He knocked another 1.2 uh, off of it. Uh, the stock market is doing well. But uh, there is still this uncertainty and anxiety and uneasiness in, in, in many communities in this country because they're not on the right side of, of all of these economic forces. And so we need thoughtful policies that include everyone in it. And, and you know what, this is not just a threat. If we don't do it, there's going to be more and more cynicism about democracy, our democracy and whether it works. Uh, and then there's also going to be more and more cynicism about capitalism. And so it's in the interests of people who care about democracy and care about capitalism uh, to respond to this challenge that's coming at warp speed and make sure that uh, we're looking out for uh, the whole country, not just those in a few elite uh, zip codes. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting because you you like like I do review the economic data, whether it is GDP or whether it is taking a look at macro huge national numbers. But when you drill down the growing unemployment rates, and there are uh, turnarounds in unemployment rates in in places where Trump did very well, some of those places yep. are seeing four plus percent unemployment again. And and I think the farm economy is going to struggle as we move into a transition where we have more and more competition, um, that lots of eggs uh, have been put in the basket of uh, Chinese market um, that puts them in charge of yes. our agriculture. We need to expand yes. those markets. We need to look at, I mean, there's just things, systemic things that need to be done right now that are not yes. being done because we are too polarized in our politics and, and we are, we are not giving the American public 
enough credit to understand, you know, we think those simple answers of, of okay, we're going to give you Medicare for all. Okay, so that reveals that I'm not a big fan of Medicare for all because it's a slogan. It's not a reality. And and so let's talk about what you really need to do in healthcare. Let's talk about what you really need to do with the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that honestly, I think that those voters who are sitting in the middle, who haven't made up their mind yet, who aren't part of a tribe, that's the message that's going to resonate with them. And there's a lot of those people in rural America. David, thanks so much for joining me. We could go on forever agreeing. And, and no, I don't think we disagreed on one thing. <laughs> no, no, it's such a pleasure to uh, to speak with you, Heidi, and I so appreciate your service. I wish you were sitting in that chamber right now, uh, bringing uh, your good com- common you know, sense to this discussion. Uh, well, it, you know, I, I, as I sit uh, overlooking the Missouri River, in beautiful yeah. North Dakota, I'm thinking there is no better chair I'd rather be in than the one. Yeah, yeah, I hear you there. I hear you there. Great talking uh, Thank you. Great talking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that you all will follow us on Twitter at underscore one country, all one word, underscore, or join us on uh, the internets at onecountryproject.org.